Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org podcasts. Oh, really? Yes. Um, <laughs> what could be more uh, healthy than a final resurrection body in the new heavens and earth? Now, those who believe in health and wealth this side of the new heavens and earth uh, have what I call an over-realized eschatology. They're expecting the new heavens and earth already yes. here. Uh, while we're here, we should expect nothing more than the destiny of the Lamb. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. This is the audio series for people who not only love the Bible and want to understand the Bible for themselves, but for those who find themselves quite often in situations of teaching the Bible, giving the Bible back out. This is the audio series for people who don't want to settle for what we already understand and can grasp about the Bible, but we want to learn how to own whole books of the Bible so that we can teach the Bible rightly, creatively, effectively. I ask your forgiveness on this episode for my voice struggling with uh, a bit of allergies, but I'm here at Westminster Theological Seminary in, in Philadelphia, and I'm here with Dr. Greg Beal. Dr. Beale holds the J. Gresham Machen Chair of New Testament. He's professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Westminster Seminary. He's been here since 2010. Thank you, Dr. Beale, for being willing to sit down and talk with us. Well, good to be here. So before coming to Westminster, you taught as in biblical studies and professor of New Testament from 1999 to 2010 at Wheaton. Right. Been at Gordon-Conwell, mm-hmm. Grove City College. Yeah. And, um, that's pretty much it. That, well, that's not it. That's not it because so much of your work is between uh, two covers and books. Hmm. Uh, some of your books are some of the heftiest on my shelf. Um, well, they serve as good um, um, uh, uh, books to keep doors open. And, oh, good. Um, oh, it was door stops? Yeah, door stops. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I think they're a little bit. Better than that, <laughs> especially some of these, like on your New Testament's use of the Old Testament. I mean, some of the work that you've done mm-hmm. to help us how understand how to rightly understand the New Testament in light of its use of the right. Old Testament and the other way around, too, True. Uh, has been very significant. But I'm especially excited to talk to you today about the book of Revelation. Um, I think this is the book. That so many people who are thinking about teaching the Bible, maybe this is the as one of the the book at the top of their list. That's like, I'm never going to teach that book. Uh, too intimidating. Well, you know what's interesting is that uh, somebody took a poll. I have no idea where the poll was, but it was a poll of churches and pastors, and uh, they polled the pastors and said, "What is the book that you least want to preach?" And uh, they the consensus was the book of Revelation. They polled the people. In the congregation, said, what is the book you would most like to hear preached on? They said Revelation. So there's a correlation. That makes total sense. (laughs) Uh, I I remember a number of years ago in the women's Bible study at my church, that exact scenario played out. And so it was like, okay, so we're going to teach Revelation. And I got asked to teach it. And honestly, I was looking for any excuse to get out of it. 
because I just thought mm-hmm. I, I, I can't figure that out well enough to get up front. And I thought, well, I better read through the book <laughs> before I say no, which was a really good thing to do because, you know, there at the beginning of the book, you have in, in verse three of Revelation, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And I was like, is there any blessing that God offers that I want to turn toward that blessing and say, you know, I don't really need that. I'm not in need of that blessing. And then when you get to the very end, it says, you know, don't close up the words of this mm-hmm. prophecy. And mm-hmm. I love, I, I think it's maybe even in the message, maybe where it says, don't put the words of this book on the shelf. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, that's effectively in many ways what I've done mm-hmm. out of fear of being able to understand it, out of fear about getting up to teach it and being asked questions. Yeah that I won't know how to answer and that maybe I'll feel foolish or feel like I have failed in, in teaching yeah. it well. And so that would cause us to leave it up on the shelf. Right. So I'm grateful you're going to help us with that today. You've already helped me. Well, hopefully. You've already helped me as I've just spent the last few days reading through your book of Revelation commentary that's in the New International Greek Text Commentary, or then it was newly released in this Revelation, a shorter commentary, right. of course, 500 words or 500 pages, I think. It's still one of the longest commentaries, so it's kind of embarrassing. But you know, in I, fact, I, you know what the subtitle says: a shorter commentary. Yes, <laughs> and, as uh, opposed to what? <laughs> and there was a, there was a debate among the publishers. Some said, "No, you can't call this a shorter commentary because it's longer than most of the regular commentaries." And somehow, um, it ended up with what I wanted to call it. So that was a blessing for me. Well, I found it to be, uh, I found, first of all, I found it to be so clear, which I found really helpful. I, I kept, you know, I had certain questions or topics that I thought to myself, will he talk about this? And you did, mm. which was grateful. Learned a lot of new things, some of which we'll talk about through, through here. Um, but also I, I was really helped. I mean, this, something that's not typical in a commentary is at the end of each section, mm-hmm. you have kind of some, it's not written like discussion questions. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember exactly what you call it. We'll find it here. But like questions they, for reflection. Yeah, questions for reflection. And those were just all so right on and, and helpful. I just thought this would equip someone to be able to open up uh, the book of Revelation and and begin to teach through it with a, with a sense of confidence. I mean, mm. does anybody teach the book of Revelation with a complete sense of confidence that you've got it all figured out? I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many parts of Revelation that uh, I, I, I'll look at a journal that has an article on it or a book that has a section on it, and I'll read it and say, well, I, I, got didn't, that wrong. I didn't put that in the yeah. commentary. It's not so much that, that uh, yeah, I, I may have gotten things wrong, but more that there are clarifications. Yeah. There's no way. Things you didn't see. Think, yeah, there's no way. You just have to settle with that. There's no uh, exhaustive or perfect commentary, so... And I'm sure I've gotten some things wrong in it, too. In fact, I have a list of corrections at home that's been sitting on my desk for <laughs> five years for my big commentary. <laughs> wow. So. Well, you know, we could, spend, we could spend the rest of the day here talking about Revelation. <laughs> and um, uh, we don't have that time, and neither do our listeners. And so usually in these episodes, I just begin at the beginning of the book and we work its way through. But I think because I did spend a good amount of time in your commentary and just found so many worthwhile just – uh, sentences, statements that mm. I thought were so profound and more specifically so helpful to someone who's getting ready to teach it. 
What I'd like to do is just begin working my way through Revelation, a shorter commentary, and just read you some of your own sentences and let you talk to us. Right? Well, I'm looking at your bookmarks. Yeah. And while my commentary really isn't a shorter commentary, I'm wondering about whether this is really going to be a shorter interview. <laughs> well, I guess that'll be up to both of us to, to keep it going. Okay. Um, but And our focus is not to you know, settle every issue or be exhaustive, mm-hmm. but... Um, we're specifically thinking about that person who's considering teaching revelation or mm-hmm. preparing to mm-hmm. and speaking to them about how to, how we can help them, um, get a grasp and to open up this book confident in that blessing that God has promised that it really will happen for them and for their listeners. So let's just dive in if you're okay. okay. I'm on the very first page of the introduction. There are actually three sentences here that I thought uh, were so helpful. The very first sentence, you say, one of the great tragedies in the church in our day is how revelation has been so narrowly and incorrectly interpreted with an obsessive focus on the future end time with the result that we have missed the fact that it contains many profound truths and encouragements concerning Christian life and discipleship. Why is it that that has happened with this book? Well, that's a hard question to answer briefly, but um, uh, essentially beginning in the early 1900s, the Schofield Reference Bible became really probably one of the most influential Bibles on conservative American Christians. And it, it saw the book of Revelation as primarily about the future. And then, uh, of course, the, the, the dispensational uh, theology um, has, has furthered that and uh, sees the book of Revelation primarily as future. Now, that's still true, even among more what, what I would call um, thoroughgoing biblical um, dispensationalists who are progressive dispensationalists, they would still see the book primarily about the future, but to their credit, they do take much of it symbolically or figuratively, whereas uh, popular uh, dispensationalism and classic dispensationalism tended to take it more straightforwardly and literally. Are you saying before 1900 it wasn't primarily seen in the future was it seen more well, as it, a yeah. book about the church age no there were there were it wasn't as dominantly okay. seen that it's the way. dominance especially in our christian media culture of that voice right right it, it is interesting you know if you try to find uh, one year my wife bought me for christmas calvin's commentary so i immediately leapt to the last volume and there was no volume on the book of Revelation, so he did not write a commentary on that book. And I think part of it was because I think he sensed, this is my speculation, that this book should be interpreted symbolically. But he was conducting, he and Luther conducting a polemic all along the way against the allegorical interpretative emphasis of Catholicism and may have thought that might be a little hard to make a distinction in, perhaps. Well, another sentence you have here, you say it's difficult to understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I think I under, would have said I understood what you're saying mm-hmm. in that sentence. I think I understand it more deeply having read your commentary uh, in terms of what you mean by that. But I almost wonder if that relates to what we're just talking about, too, in the terms of 
so much of evangelical Christianity becoming so New Testament oriented mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with no use for the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so that if we don't have this, this yeah. deeper sense of the Old Testament when we come to Revelation, how can we even understand it rightly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the first things that I found as I started writing and teaching on the book of Revelation was that almost every verse has at least one if not more, allusions to the Old Testament. And so what that means is, and that's true throughout the book, uh, what that that means is is that whereas many people will look at the book of Revelation today in in our popular uh, Christian uh, churches, and uh, they will immediately want to say, okay, how does this relate to the modern era? Right. What This looks like uh, chapter 9, for example, it talks about these locusts with the faces of men and the hair of women, and they have the sound of chariots, and they have stingers in their tails, and, and some commentators, and, uh, and some actually believe this refers to uh, modern war helicopters, you know, that kind of... And so there's this kind of what one might even call a newspaper kind of exegesis where you're trying to go from revelation to what's going on around you mm-hmm. or what looks like is going to happen soon. What this means, that there's an allusion to the Old Testament in every verse, we don't immediately want to look at the present or the future. John is directing us back. That's the first thing. It doesn't mean, by the way, there are parts of Revelation, certainly. I would say the Revelation is not just a futurology of the church, but a redemptive historical psychology of the church on how to act in the present. So it's both in. And so uh, you go back first, though, to the Old Testament. Then you come back and see, okay, what's the context of Revelation saying here? And, and you carry over one of the essential ideas of the Old Testament that's going to enlighten us. That's why John is referring to the Old Testament. Okay, I'm completely convinced from reading your commentary. Yeah, I've got to really grasp, especially Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Would those be the three? uh, uh, Maybe Zechariah? Three main ones. Okay, I've got to really grasp those then before, in many ways, or at least during the time I'm studying Revelation. It would be good just to read them through. Okay, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, if I am convinced, I've got to do that to understand Mm -hmm. it rightly. Can you tell me a practical way? I mean, is it just reading through them? Is there some other way to really equip myself with those books specifically to help me understand Revelation? Well, what you'd want to do is get a full Bible with marginal references. And what those marginal references will do, they'll be keyed to each verse, and they'll tell you what Old Testament background, what passage is in mind. Now, so some, you're talking about when you're reading through Revelation. When you're reading through read Revelation. Read all of the Old Testament. You, you be sure to to look at the margins and what Old Testament references are used in those margins. This is if you're teaching a lesson on it. And you go back to those Old Testament verses and try to see, okay, what did they mean in their context? Now, sometimes that may be hard, but, you know, the Bible is an open book, and I, I do think that that a good percentage of of the time uh, the person preparing a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study can do this. Now, they're going to really have to work, but they can do it and and just get a good Bible. Now, sometimes those margins may have, they may disagree with one another, but generally speaking, they'll give you the most important Old Testament references. So it's got to be more than just reading the verse and that I see 
some of the same language, although that's helpful because mm-hmm. I recognize right. that, yeah, it's not referring to a mm-hmm. helicopter in the future, right. but right. he is drawing from an Old Testament prophet. But right. I probably don't I need to dig somehow to understand what that prophet, um, what the both the divine right. and the human right. author was right. intending to communicate to his readers in his day. Yeah, you'd want to see what does that verse mean in its paragraph and chapter in that Old Testament book. And then you know, when you come back, you want to see, okay, what's, uh, how does this form part of the paragraph of this book? By the way, my commentary, um, and, and I think there are others like this, my commentary will divide my comments up according to paragraphs, and then what I'll do is give the main idea of each paragraph. So that if someone's using my book, I'm not trying to sell it so much. But at any rate... No, I, uh, honestly, I, I thought, I, okay, I've, I've got my main points right here. You've delineated that's right, them. Yeah. That's right. And that's the point. So that you can fit that one verse and the illusion of the Old Testament into, okay, the, the major point of the whole and see how it's relating. You say here, the apocalyptic prophetic nature of revelation can be defined as God's revelatory interpretation through visions and auditions of his mysterious counsel about past, present, and future redemptive eschatological history and how the nature and operation of heaven relates to this. Now, that's a complicated <laughs> sentence. You do have a few complicated sentences, but that does seem so essential to understanding no, Revelation. T- Can you put it in simpler language? That sentence took a long time. <laughs> I bet it's it a, did. It's a little bit German as well. Is that it? And okay. So, well, tell uh, us what you meant by it. Um, well, essentially, I'm just going to boil it down to what okay, I think good. is important. That what the Book of Revelation does, it is a vision from the invisible heavenly realm that typically humans don't have access to, and so this realm is now invading the earthly realm through John the prophet, and he then allows that invasion to continue by writing about this to his churches. Well, what's the revelation about? Well, mainly heaven, the values of heaven tend to be the reverse of the values on earth. And so we, 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 we again and again, uh, if we're tempted to compromise with the world, as John's readers were in various ways, we find, well, here are the norms of heaven, and here's what you need to be reminded of. In fact, I think that's why John addresses, there's been a lot of discussion, why does John address the letters to the angels. What's going on there? A lot of interpretations. Some say, well, angels stand for pastors or they stand for the messengers. Um, but, But I think they're actually just, in the rest of the book, they're supernatural angels. And I think the point is, is that John, Jesus, wants to remind the churches of their heavenly home, where the angels are, where their power comes from to resist the world. So the um, whole of spiritual reality beyond what they can see. Right, right. We we need this, and of course, you you already get anticipations of this in the Old Testament as well, with the the the, the, the revelatory heavenly visions of Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, etc. Of course, very broadly speaking, that's what the Bible is. God is giving us His Word to tell us. Uh, what his values are, because we're always confronted with the values of the world. As David Wells once said, said something really beautiful. He said, worldliness, which we're confronted with, to, to be tempted with, worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. We need to be familiar with the Bible and the book of Revelation to, to realize we're the normal ones, but we've got to know what is normal. 
and from God's eyes, so we don't get we don't lapse into thinking that the sinful ways of the world are normal, and that can happen in so many ways, especially in this day and time as we see it happening around us. You said here, the dictum of the popular approach to Revelation, which is interpret literally, unless you're forced to interpret symbolically, should actually be turned on its head. Right. Why? Well, because uh, the title of the book comes in chapter 1 and verse 1, which is really the programmatic verse, which says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants what must come to pass quickly. And here come the important words. And he... he uh, communicated it by sending to his angel, uh, by sending by his angel to John. That word communicated is translated in many different ways in different Bibles. Sometimes it, it, it can mean communicated. Sometimes it's translated made known. Those are very general translations. What translation do you have? ESV, to show his servants. Is that the verse you're talking about? Yeah, read the verse again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He he made it known. That's it. He made it known. So make known is a possible translation or um, um, communicated. But it's very general. That can fit into either. Maybe he made it known by symbols or maybe he made it known in a very literal way. However, um, a number of translations, uh, uh, like the Old King James and uh, New American Standard, uh, some translations, like New American Standard, will translate it communicated, but there's a marginal note saying uh, uh, communicate by symbols or signify. It can mean that, often. It can mean the other two. So what do we do? Um, how, how can we make uh, a decision? Well, um, here's where the old and the new comes in and how important it is. This language in Revelation 1 is from Daniel chapter 2. Even the word revelation, together with what must come to pass, together with this word signify, all uniquely occur only in Daniel 2, nowhere else in the Old Testament. Well, so what difference does that make, as my wife always says? You know, I get excited about the Old Testament and the New and sometimes uh, get, uh, forget to explain the significance. Well, the significance is this. What was Daniel 2 about? You remember we were talking about the context? Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's of a big statue in four sections. It's uh, hit by a stone cut without hands. And, um, and, and it says that the stone represented God's kingdom and it defeated the kingdoms of evil. Well, was, is this a... Did God show Nebuchadnezzar what was literally going to come to pass in the future? In other words, was there a big statue that's going to walk through uh, the world and and then a stone's literally going to be cut out and hit it, you know, maybe like a you know a Godzilla thing and then a jet striking Godzilla or something like that? Obviously, this is cartoon language. You know, it's like the bear representing Russia. Or uh, the donkey representing the Republicans, or the elephant—I mean, uh, the Democrats—or elephant representing the Republicans. Um, the vision was a communication by symbols, and so this actual word that's used, that John translates, that many translate as communicate or made known or signify. Which is it? It's signify, because that's the way it's used in Daniel. So what we're saying here, this is the programmatic verse of Revelation. We're saying we should expect to see symbols. It doesn't mean there isn't literal stuff in the book. Yes, there is. And sometimes it may be tough to know. And you said later, I like this, you said just because it's 
symbols doesn't mean it's not real. Exactly. What do you mean by that? That means that there's are if I, if I say Herod is like a fox, well that's a figure of speech. But what does that really say? What's real about Herod? Well, maybe in the context of showing how fierce and wily that Herod is. That's the reality of the figure. So, so there's no such thing. I mean, when you say something is symbolic, that doesn't mean it has no meaning. Uh, it just means that uh, we have to work a little bit to get at that meaning. And so essentially, in terms of the symbols that are used in Revelation, mm-hmm. you've got creatures and they're descriptive as well as numbers would that does that encapsulate the the categories of symbolism or there more than that well you have creatures that sometimes represent humans uh objects they represent angels Uh, i mean you've got the devil being called the dragon in Mm -hmm. chapter 12 jesus in chapter 5 as a lamb um i tend to think that indeed Yes. Uh, the, the, or even when you get to the end about this, talking about city and temple and a yes. gate to a city and a mm-hmm. foundation, those are that's symbolism kind of language. Right. For example, uh, I believe it's in verse 16 of chapter 21 where it says that the dimensions of the city, that it was uh, as wide as it was long as it was high. And that is a direct allusion. To it should make some bells ring in terms Come, of Old Testament. You can't understand that without the Old Testament. It's, it's the description of the Holy of Holies in First Kings 6. That means this whole city, is con- which is the whole cosmos, is the Holy of Holies. God's presence now is broken out of the Holy of Holies and it fills the whole earth. And uh, so, you know, that's very crucial. But you, you, the first sh- shot out of the bag where you find a number in Revelation that would indicate this sort of uh, uh, interpretative approach to numbers where it says that this book is from uh, uh, God who is and was and is to come and uh, from Jesus Christ. And the middle element is, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Well, are there seven holy spirits? Well, of course not. This is clearly, however, a Trinitarian formula. This is the spirit in its fullness. That's the point of it. doesn't mean the spirit's unreal because it says there are seven. It means that this is the, it makes it even more real, the fullness of the spirit. You talk about various positions, and there are plenty of places where people can read about the various approaches to uh, revelation in terms of futurist ideals, those kinds of things. But I thought this was interesting. You, you talked about how the various sections relate to each other, the futurist position or the recapitulation position. Yeah. Explain what you mean by that, which is yeah. really essential as we're figuring out yeah. even how to divide up how we're going to teach through the book. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, without getting into too much detail, the literal futurist position Tends, and there are exceptions to this, but it tends to take uh, the order of events in Revelation um, to uh, follow the order of the visions. Maybe I can reverse that. As you look at what the visions are about in Revelation as one comes after another, well, that's the way they're presenting history, events we, coming one after another. And we tend to be another. chronological right. readers and thinkers. We yeah. make an assumption yeah. there, don't we, when right. we say, if this comes after right. this in the book, this must be something that happens afterward. Right. Whereas I think that what we get are uh, visions <clears throat> that are given to us, uh, the ma- like, like the major vision section of the, the seals, and then the vision section of the trumpets, and then the vision section 
of the bowls. I think in each of those, we get a picture of the beginning of the church age, the middle, and towards the end of each series, uh, uh, the exclusive future. And then so that after the seals, when you come to the trumpets, it starts over again. But from a different vantage point, you're getting snapshots from different vantage points filling in each time. So could you say, you know, time-wise... Those three things, in terms of the the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, they're in a sense sitting on top of each yeah. other. On, mm-hmm. uh, if we're looking chronologically, yeah, pancaked, or yeah, or but, you know, maybe it's like a cylinder. And as we read through Revelation, mm-hmm. we're almost revolving around it, seeing yeah. each one from another angle. Is That's that a good way at to all fair? That's a good way to put it. Now, uh, it's important too to realize you can take uh, <clears throat> the whole book. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, there's some who do see some recapitulation, and yet they still take the book more literally. So they're all they're they're. It's hard to summarize without being a little reductionistic. You say that chapter one, verse nineteen, is a key for interpreting the whole of the book. Let me read mm-hmm. that verse so we understand what we're talking about. Uh, John has just described seeing this vision of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus speaks to him, and Jesus says to him, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. How, mm-hmm. how does that serve as a key? There are at least five interpretations of this passage. Those not, one verse? Yes, if not more. And in my opinion, there are three or four that are viable. Okay, wow. I'm okay. just going to give you one. All right. Okay, and it's, it's this. This is what the book is about. Right there for what, you, what you've seen. You've seen the Son of Man, uh, right about the, but, but everything that has to do with the Son of Man in the past. He who was the faithful witness, as it talks about, et cetera, et cetera. So this book is about, there's, there are past parts. Also, write what is. You're going to be writing about the present in this book, Okay. This is another programmatic verse for the book. And furthermore, also, you are to write about what must come to pass after these things. So you're going you're gonna to write about the future as well. And um, <clears throat> that phrase, very intriguingly again, comes out of Daniel chapter 2, uh, what must come to pass after these things. And um, and that probably is talking about the already, but also the uh, the not yet of, uh, of of the end time. So it may be talking about the threefold time scope of the book. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that uh, in terms of surveys, people would say they most want to learn Revelation. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they're hoping to learn <laughs> from it is necessarily what the book delivers, which is so often when we come to the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. We come to it with our questions, what we think we really need to know. Right. And then as we study the Bible rightly, um, God, through his living word, tells us what we most need to mm-hmm. know. So surely that's the case in the book of Revelation. And you give three main theological messages of Revelation. And so perhaps we could set these up and you could explain a little bit for teachers here, here's the target you're shooting for mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as you work through the book. Yeah, you want to get all the references and the mm-hmm. symbolism and the <laughs> explanations right. But here's here's the aim for your shooting for. You know you've hit it. One, you say, is a willingness to suffer for Christ is the path to ultimate victory. 
Mm-hmm. Talk mm-hmm. to us about that. How is that an aim for the book? And then my aim as I teach people this today. Well, I think that another way to say that is that the uh, the book is cruciform. That is, we're to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's what Revelation fourteen four says. And so you look at the f- presentation of the Lamb, not just in chapter one, but especially in chapter five. He's slain. But but, but what you have is an amazing irony. Uh, John first hears uh, the earlier verse that uh, the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. He's conquered. Then all of a sudden, after hearing that, you see a vision. And the vision actually explains how he's conquered. I saw a lamb standing, having been slain. So he conquered through the cross. And we conquer in no other way. Standing in Jesus, chapter 1 and verse 9, really another programmatic part of the book, says, I, John, your fellow partaker and uh, sufferer uh, in the kingdom and uh, uh, the tribulation and the perseverance in Jesus. So in Jesus, he himself persevered through tribulation and ruled in the midst of it. If you're identified with him, if you're in Jesus, as John was, and to those whom he was writing, you will do that. And so that's the, it's the cruciform nature of the book, victory in the midst of suffering. This seems significant to me uh, as we're, anytime we're teaching, we want to get the theology right. But your point here, that this becomes very personal and very timely in our day, doesn't it? As, you know, as we're talking, people are all upset because Starbucks cups don't look very Christmassy. And, you know, some have suggested that that's some kind of persecution of Christians, which I think if we look at that in light of, of the book of Revelation, we might think otherwise. But um, as we're teaching, this does become a real point of then of really turning people to, to move mm-hmm. toward their hearts and, mm-hmm. and, and real life where it is from the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think so. I think so. And I think if you're mainly looking at Revelation from the outside and and I hope I'm not offending anyone, but taking it overly uh, literally, then you're going to be looking at, uh, you know, well, this refers to uh, helicopters and so forth and so forth. Instead, this book is about spiritual realities to a great deal. Doesn't mean it doesn't affect the, affect the physical, yes, but it, it's about you're going to be missing spiritual realities. And I think that's why John says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That comes right out of Matthew 13, where the disciples have said, why are you speaking in parables? And he says, because to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to those outside, no. And how does he explain those mysteries? Through symbolic parables. That should be an indication from that little line. And he he introduces that and concludes with, he who has an ear, let him hear. John repeats that because you should expect parables. And they're going to be dealing with the spiritual aspects of the kingdom. <clears throat> Your second theological message you said. By the way, yes. what that means is it's not just the Old Testament uh, against which we're to uh, understand the book of Revelation, but also the new in, in Jesus and the Gospels. The second uh, theological message you say of Revelation is the sovereignty of God in human history. Once again, uh, a lofty thing that can be out there, but also a personal thing. Um, in terms of understanding, this is a place as teachers, like for example, when we talk about him opening those seals of judgments and, 
in history. I mean, this this is really encouraging, isn't it, to to the suffering believer? We've been talking about how yeah, they have to have a willingness to suffer, and yet here is the hope, isn't it, that when those seals come off and all of God's plans for human history are brought about, we don't have to think that this world is reeling out of control mm-hmm. because we have a sovereign God. The grand vision that underscores the sovereignty of God is Revelation 4 and 5. God's on a throne and um, around him are the four living creatures, four guarding cherubim and Around them are the 24 elders that I argue represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the whole uh, community of the redeemed. And then around them are angels, and around them are all living creatures, and they're all glorifying God. In fact, that's how both chapters end, the glory of God. And so the point is is that, that God is sovereign in creation and in redemption. Why? For his glory, not our glory. And, uh, and so really, the whole book flows out of that, uh, of that vision. So it's a book about God and the Lamb on the throne. Not just God, but the Lamb, a very high view of his deity. Yeah, you say in this whole section, the people of God have no other destiny during the church age than that of the Lamb during his earthly ministry. Mm. That's pretty significant if we think our lives, somehow because he has suffered, we don't have to. It's exactly the opposite. I, I, on the other hand, do believe in the health and wealth gospel. Oh, really? Yes. Um, (laughs) What could be more uh, healthy than a final resurrection body in the new heavens and earth? Now, those who believe in health and wealth this side of the new heavens and earth... Uh, have what I call an over-realized eschatology. They're expecting the new heavens and earth already yes. here. Uh, while we're here, we should expect nothing more than the destiny of the Lamb. Health and wealth is coming. Yes. But not quite yet. Right. <laughs> okay, your third main theological message of Revelation, you say, is the new creation as fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what that uh, is is um, getting at is that Genesis 1 through 3 basically presents Adam as a king priest who is to rule over creation. And if he's faithful, then he will inherit what I call escalated blessings of a renewed body, immortal, uh, an immortal renewed earth. And that doesn't happen. Something course. more than he experienced in Eden yeah. was ahead for him yeah. if he... Mm-hmm. Was obedient. If he had been faithful, his whole progeny, image bearers, reflecting the glory of God, would have filled the whole earth, and the whole earth would have been filled with the glory of God. That didn't happen, so the whole uh, of Scripture then begins to anticipate that happening in the old. It begins to happen with Jesus, consummates when he finally comes, and that's why uh, when I mentioned a while ago that the whole cosmos is pictured as the Holy of Holies, where God's glorious presence is. What's well, also pictured as Eden, and it's also pictured um, as uh, a city. And uh, so all three of those um, come together. The whole universe, uh, well, yeah, the whole heavens and earth become uh, uh, the place of renewed, escalated creation. It's not just a recapitulation of Eden. This goes beyond Eden because it cannot be reversed. Okay. It's not vulnerable 
Yeah, I love that little line then in in chapter 21. Nothing evil can ever enter it. When I read that, I think about that serpent slithering in yeah. and just think that's the big difference, isn't it? Adam that's never going to happen. Serpent. He was a priest. He should have kept the serpent out. And in fact, that, that, that phrase that you mentioned uh, literally is nothing unclean will come into the city. The reason for that is because it's temple imagery again. Nothing unclean can come into the, the temple. Which you can't understand that without Leviticus, right? Amen. Exodus and Leviticus. Yes. Right? One, uh, I guess I could call him a character, uh, throughout, that's very significant in the whole book of Revelation, is Satan, the serpent, the dragon, the devil. He's called all these things. And you make it one, at one point on your suggested reflections on chapter 6, you suggest that we reflect on the sovereignty of God in relation to the activities of the devil. And you say that, that this passage presents a picture of God sending, interesting word choice, I thought, God sending trials on the earth throughout the workings of the satanic enemy. Mm-hmm. And we've got to think deeply about the plans and purposes of God, the power of God, the limited mm-hmm. nature of the power of Satan, but certainly his sovereignty to understand that. And as we teach this, this is going to be really challenging to our people, right? Because yeah. most people oh, think, well, okay, Satan's doing the bad stuff. God's just doing the good stuff. Um, talk to me more about what you're trying to communicate God, here. Yeah, I mean, if you... Look at the context. Chapter 5 is ended with the Lamb on the throne with the sealed book. He begins to open a seal, you get a trial. And, uh, for example, the, the, the second uh, seal is opened, and a red horse went out to him who sat on it. It was granted to take peace from the earth, that men should slay one another. Great sword was given to him. So we have, you know, this horseman going out uh, that figuratively represents um, uh, a trial sent by God on believers and unbelievers, by the way. Though believers are in focus here because of uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, where John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain. So probably they're the focus. But And, and, and it, this is compounded in the last horseman. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death, and Hades was following with him. So you get hell itself sent out. Uh, from the throne uh, to, to, to spiritually wreak havoc with people's souls. Uh, that's really tough. And so what is going on here? How could God actually send out? Um, and by the way, it's the four living creatures that, that they'll open a seal and, uh, and then they'll give a command to the horse. I think that these horses are, are, are not good agents. They're like these steeds that are just going back and forth with their, their hoofs. They're wanting to get out and wreak havoc, and they're let out, and they do. And so um, I, and I think the reason for it is summarized actually in the fourth seal where you have a full quotation, which is unusual in Revelation, not just an allusion, which says at the end of verse 8 that they are to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And that is from Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 21. Well, again, so what difference does that make? Well, if you read it in the context, it says the purpose of this 
was to punish the majority of hardened Israelites because of their unbelief, but to refine the faithful. And I think that's what's going on here. So that the focus really is on the covenant community. Yes, unbelievers, because it does, if you look at the earlier context of Ezekiel, it does talk about other nations affected by these things. But especially the covenant community and and its purpose for believers is to refine them. Now you say, God, that, that sounds awfully difficult still. I mean, how could Jesus, through his guardian angels, be sending out this havoc? Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, there are people who disagree with me on this. They think, well, these are good horsemen, okay? You'd have to read my commentary to see why I disagree. But basically it fits right into we follow the lamb wherever he goes. What happened to Jesus? God caused the powers of evil to crucify him. And yet... He overcame it, and we will follow him, even in the midst of that suffering. And so I think it's the cruciform nature. It's, it's that Christological thing. If you understand, to me, whether it's the problem of evil, so many things. If you go to the cross, you get a better understanding, not only of who Jesus was, but of who we are in relation to him. And this kind of theology begins to make sense. It's tough theology, but it's deep. And don't we need it more than ever before in our world today? I mean, you know, things just, are not out of control, but we are seeing believers beheaded on television, right? So it would seem to me if we ever needed the message of revelation to be taught well and rightly, which is ex- anticipate that you will suffer and that this, and that this is not somehow the world gone out of God's control, exactly, but that he is doing it for the refining of believers and as we see it happen, we, as we study and really take in the hope that is there for us in Revelation, we know that evil is going to be punished and that this persecution is going to come to an end. I mean, it's a good reason to teach Revelation, isn't it? Amen. But again, the cross, you know, Acts 2 says, Jesus delivered up by the predetermined yes. plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. That nailing and putting to death was the predetermined plan of God. That's throughout all the scripture. And we're not outside that plan. That's Joseph. You meant it for evil. God intended it for good. That's Job. All of our suffering as believers is ultimately in God's hands. He is in control over evil, and we see it to the very end here in Revelation. Just remember that proverbial saying of Revelation 14.4. I think it's almost proverbial. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a really that crucial good. element of the book. It's a little tip of the iceberg rising up in the midst of a visionary section. Okay, you said something here uh, um, in your commentary. You're, it's in your section on chapter 11. This is one of those places where I came with a question. I was glad that you answered. Uh, this question came up for me a little bit more when I was preparing to teach in Revelation 4 and 5, where you have this scene uh, John gets to see into what we might call ultimate spiritual reality. You've got all this worship going on around the throne. And when I was teaching it, I was struggling with, am I describing something that's happening now or something that's going to happen in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and here in, uh, I'm on page 237 of your commentary, which is on chapter 11, but you make this statement. Um, through this final consummation of the, though this final consummation of the kingdom had not yet occurred when John received the vision, it had happened from the perspective of those offering the heavenly praise. The change in time perspective 
enforces the thought this this section is narrating the actual establishment of the future kingdom and the final judgment as the content of the seventh trumpet. So just speak to me in general, and maybe there's some other places that this really comes into play mm-hmm. as we study and try to understand Revelation. That big question, when I'm reading it, is this, and, and when it's a vision in heaven, is this something that's happening now? Uh, that I, when I see this vision around the throne in Revelation 4 or 5, could I say that my loved ones, believers who have gone into heaven, can I say that's what they're experiencing right now? Or is it really more a picture of what's going to happen at the consummation? Or is it a bit of both? I think I'm going to try to answer that with uh, an illustration that George Caird gives in his commentary on Revelation. He was a scholar at Oxford and actually was my um, external examiner over my dissertation on the use of the Old Testament Revelation. But he said this. He said that Revelation 4 and 5, and I think this would apply to other parts of the book, like what you're talking about, it's like a war room, uh, an underground war room in London during World War II. And you go down there, there's this huge room, and you see a huge map of Europe. And you see flags at different points. Let's say some are blue, some are green, and uh, uh, some are red. One color represents where the troops were. Another color represents where they presently are. And another color represents where they will be. And I think that's what's going on in Revelation 4 through 5. So it's not nice and tidy. It may be a little difficult to identify each flag, maybe. But, you know, we might be able to make some of that out. And uh, so, and and that's a good description of, of, of the book of Revelation at certain points you may have what you have in chapter 7 um, and, uh, you, you know, a vision of, of the future. It looks, well, could, is this present? Is it future? <clears throat> and maybe, maybe there's a little bit of both um, at that point, especially later on in chapter 7. Is that where, where it's picturing the saints as, as, as serving God in the temple day and night and, and their thirst has been quenched? Is that referring to glorified saints in the interim or saints at the very end of time? There may be a merging of those two. It's not an easy thing. The tenses even go back and forth in the in the Greek. So at any rate. Yeah. But maybe when we get later, like maybe when we get to Revelation 19, where it's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we get, mm-hmm. when we get later, that's we know that's got to be at the con- yeah, consummation, correct? Future. Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay, another big question I've had. Oh. <laughs> All right, so as we, um, you know, I'm someone who uh, didn't have a sense of biblical theology. Uh, I, I, honestly, I'd never heard the term the new heavens and new earth until probably, you know, eight or ten years ago. And uh, I remember, you know, a pastor beginning to talk about that and just beginning to even think the thoughts of, you mean it's not just going to heaven when we die, mm-hmm. but something else is going to happen here. And so... I'm clear that, you know, like in, in first Peter, when it, it talks about this, um, dissolving this, uh, burning of creation, mm-hmm. I think I'm clear that, you know, whereas maybe at one time we might've understood that being that, uh, you know, the, the cosmos, the earth as it is, mm-hmm. is destroyed by fire, that that fire is more a purifying fire, mm-hmm. right? So we have this sense that there is this creation going to be this new creation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I was I was giving a talk on Revelation a bit ago, or or, or at least it was on on the kingdom mm-hmm. of God and talking about God, the kingdom as it will be one day. And I closed by singing, "This is my Father's world," and there is this line in in "This is my Father's world." The earth will soon dissolve like snow. The sun refuse to shine. And so let me just read a few different lines from your commentary and then just help me make sense of them all in terms of the rejuvenation, Mm -hmm. renewal of the cosmos Mm -hmm. versus it Mm -hmm. being uh, starting over. All right. So you you talk about the that uh, this passage indicates the conclusive universal and you say destruction which passage uh, i am uh, in revelation 16 when okay. you talk about every okay. island fled away Good. and the mountains were not found thank you so chapter sixteen twenty, and you say it indicates the conclusive universal destruction of the earth at judgment day mm-hmm. later on page 464 and i'm honestly not trying to test you on your book you understand <laughs> i'm trying to get at the a good answer but to give you a couple of different things you said you say this point and and this is on in chapter once we get in chapter 21 Mm -hmm. this points to the transformation Mm -hmm. of the fundamental physical structure of creation you say despite the discontinuities the new cosmos will be an identifiable counterpoint to the old cosmos Mm -hmm. a renewal Mm -hmm. of it Mm -hmm. just as the body will be raised without losing its former identity which is really helpful and you say it should not be assumed however that a renewal means that there will be no literal destruction of the old cosmos, just as the renewed resurrection body does not necessitate the analogous notion, analogous notion with regard to the physical body. And then just one more from page 475. You're a very careful reader. <laughs> you say, but the new creation is described in these verses as a fundamental physical transformation of the old creation and its renewal. So is it one or the other or both in terms of destruction or renewal? Here's the key. Okay. Destruction could mean annihilation, but it doesn't have to mean annihilation. It could mean that you're destroying the heavens and earth and you have a chaotic matter again. Like in in, In the beginning. Genesis 1. Right. So I think that especially 2 Peter would say there is going to be a radical destruction of heavens and earth. On the order of Noah's flood, it compares it with that. Probably since it's by fire, maybe more radical. But I don't think it's just a kind of a, so figurative that it's an ethical cleansing so that all of our cultural institutions built by godly people will continue on into the new heavens and earth. That's more of a post-millennial kind of a view. Well, where we're it's hearing so that figurative. taught a lot today, Dr. Beale. I mean, I've been in some classes mm-hmm. where there was such an emphasis, especially maybe even in the faith and work discussion about our um, our work, our even our technology, um, Certainly in terms of environmental discussions of mm-hmm. taking care of creation, yes. you get the sense where part of the reason I, my work and my creation mm-hmm. care is I'm doing the work. I am. The motivation is that whatever you're building and contributing to will continue on into the new Exactly. So and here, here's my me. problem with that. I don't think it's annihilation. Okay. I do think it's destruction. I mean, you can destroy something, but the matter of it is just—it it, it just becomes formless. But it's—it it doesn't go out of existence. 
And that's what I think is going on. And I think and that's where your resurrection body thing is helpful, right? I was just going to bring that Ashes up. Ashes spread out Two on the Two out of those three explanations, I bring in the resurrection. I think it's from the crown of creation, perhaps, that we can deduce what's going to happen with the rest of creation. Romans 8 compares that, that the creation is groaning along with us until uh, you know the sons of God are set free from their corruption, and then the creation will be set free from its corruption. And so I think that... Uh, um, what, what's going on is, I mean, people who've died throughout the ages, their their matter is somewhere, all right, but it's no longer formed as a body, and so they will be reshaped in the new heavens and earth. Likewise, I think the, the, the rest of creation at the end will be so destroyed to become essentially formless, but it will be recreated into a new heavens and earth. Now the question comes, why should we be motivated to affect anything culturally if it's all going to be destroyed to that degree? By the way, there is a book by a guy named Richard Middleton that I'm uh, reviewing at the Evangelical Theological Society Conference this next week called A New Heaven and Earth. And this essentially is what comes up in his book. He's not clear on the nature of the transformation. And so I want to ask him about that. But he's saying that uh, there's such continuities that we should be motivated to um, affect culture. Now, uh, how about my view? How could I be motivated to affect culture if it's all, you know, buildings going to be burned up? Maybe they were buildings built by some godly person or whatever. Or maybe there's some area of politics that's become godly and shouldn't that continue on and so forth and so on. Well, I would say this. Since we're in the inaugurated in time New creation and kingdom. Now, let me say that again. Since we're in the beginning of the new creation and the kingdom, that Jesus started the beginning of yeah, it. Yeah, meaning we, since the resurrection. Yes. We call this already and that not yet in time ideas. So it's not consummated. But since we're in the beginning and we are now kings, uh, over the beginning of the new creation, which is spiritual right now, should we not act in a physical way uh, <clears throat> in anticipation of what we will be doing in the consummated stage in the new heavens and earth? And so I would say that that, for me, is good motivation since the beginning of this crea- new creation and kingdom had begun. I should begin to have behavioral patterns, even if this is the old creation, but there's going to be continuity. Uh, the, the, the new creation comes out of the old. I, I should have patterns of behavior that are anticipating the consummated pattern of behavior of taking care of the uh, new eternal creation. So for me, you can have the thing essentially destroyed, and that does not destroy your ecological or your cultural motivation. Are you relating that to the cultural mandate from Genesis? or That would be part of it. Mm-hmm. Though you have to understand, while I see that as a cultural mandate in Genesis one twenty eight, I see it also as a spiritual mandate because these are image bearers. And what are they filling the earth with? Buildings and farms and gardens? Yes, but God's, the reflection of God's glorious presence. Well, there's so much here to talk about, but I'm going to jump to Revelation 21 and 22. And once again, so much to talk about there. But one thing that um, was helpful to me, was new to me from what I read mm-hmm. uh, in in chapter 21, as John is describing the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, so much of the way he does it 
is by describing what is no more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be no more darkness and no more death and no more sorrow. And of course, there's this key statement uh, that there will no longer be any curse. So as I have uh, studied, taught Revelation 21 and 22, I'm always relating that to Genesis 3. Here is the culmination of what the whole of everything in between Genesis 3 and right. Revelation 21 and 22 has been about. Mm-hmm. God accomplishing his plan to, to uh, heal Mm-hmm. and beautify and to take the curse. And of course we see the curse fall on Jesus Christ there in the gospels. But what was new to me, which goes along with what you have said all throughout this book of understanding this rightly is going to take understanding the old Testament mm-hmm. rightly. You say the phrase is taken. I, I expect to read Genesis three, right? You say the phrase is taken from Zechariah fourteen eleven. That the curse, harem, referred to people being under a ban for complete destruction because of their sin. And uh, you describe this scene in Zechariah and you say, Jerusalem will never again be threatened by the curse of destruction for her sin. And you quote chapter 14 of Zechariah verse 11. People will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit. You you said earlier that we're going to go back to these Old Testament passages, and we're going to seek to understand them rightly to the original hearers and its original meaning. Basically, it's this, that in Genesis 1 to 3, uh, Eden is a sanctuary. Adam is the priest. He is to expand that to the ends of the earth, but he's to expand God's presence there to the ends of the earth through him and Eve and his progeny reflecting God. And so um, uh, if he had done that, then there would have actually been a a consummation of the creation that would have been, uh, 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 it would have been in an irreversible state as he would have been. He would have reached immortality. He didn't, neither did creation reach incorruptibility. But they would have been the same. The the renewed creation and Adam's immortality would have have been the same. That is, the Temple of Eden would would have been equal to the... um, Uh, the renewed creation. And so in Revelation, we find this is about new creation, but also you find that it's a temple. Well, Genesis 1 to 3 explains that because that was Adam's original task. The last Adam finally does it. But also, it's a garden. Well, that makes sense since the garden was the temple as well. And uh, all of Creation was to be an expanded garden. But why? It also says it's a city in Revelation 21. Why? Because there are also prophecies. Jeremiah 3, Zechariah 1, uh, Isaiah 54, 1 to 2, and, and otherwise, which says that in the end time, the temple was going to expand from little, little, the, the little place in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies. God was going to break out. And the first place where that breakout would occur, he would his presence would cover Jerusalem. Then it would uh, cover the promised land, as the end of Ezekiel 37 says, and then the entire earth. And so basically, I think this is talking about that Jerusalem that will cover the entire earth, which is the new creation, which is the temple, which is Eden. They're all co-equal. 
And so this is just, uh, I do think Genesis 3 is in the background because you do get the curse there. But this is developing that passage from Genesis and saying in that end time state, in the New Jerusalem, which is not just a little place on the globe, everything becomes New Jerusalem, just like everything becomes the Holy of Holies. It's all going to be God's holy land, which began in Eden. Exactly. Expanded. We had a taste of it in the promised land. That's why the promised land not only in Genesis 13, I believe it is, but, but elsewhere in the prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, is called the Garden of the Lord because it is the recapitulation of the Garden of Eden. Well, at the very end of your book, you have what you call uh, the main pastoral goal and the most important theological idea in the book. So maybe this is a good place for us to end our conversation <laughs> about this book because... These are the things we want to head toward as we're teaching. You say the main pastoral goal of the book's argument is to exhort God's people to remain faithful so they will inherit salvation. Um, That this is not the most important theological idea in the book. The major theological theme of the book is that God should receive worship and glory as a result of accomplishing consummate salvation and final judgment. So we talk a little bit about that pastoral goal as we're teaching, but then also that great theological idea that we get to be a part of. Well, the two obviously go hand in hand together because salvation ultimately, while it is anthropocentric in the sense that people are going to be saved and uh, have resurrection bodies, the whole ultimate point of a resurrection body, again, this goes back to Genesis, they were to be image bearers. And uh, when, when we have, I mean, we're now in the image of God spiritually, but not physically. Eventually, our whole being will be uh, uh, perfected so that we'll be reflective of God's glory. Now, that's final salvation, but that also dovetails right into the theological goal of glorifying God, not just with our mouths, but also um, our bodies and the way we live. Well, this has been really helpful. I, I'd really appreciate if you would close this way. If you would speak directly to the person who's considering uh, preparing to then teach through the book of Revelation, feeling somewhat intimidated, um, but also encouraged by what you've had to say to think, this is worthwhile. This is this is not just something out there in the future for people to argue about. This is real life today for the people of God to understand uh, what what it means to today live in the in the light of the Lamb who has was slain. So, just speak directly a word of encouragement, instruction to someone who's thinking about teaching Revelation, if you would. First encouragement, second instruction. Okay. First encouragement. Blessed is the one who reads and the ones who hear um, the words of the prophecy of this book. You're going to be blessed. You got to believe that. It may be, you know, you're looking at that book and you don't know how to put it together. You're going to be blessed. Just remember, nobody knows perfectly how to put that book together. And so there are degrees of knowing how to do it, but just realize that you're going to be blessed. You have to believe that. And when you teach it, you need to start off telling people that and reading that verse. Word of instruction. Um, I think that, uh, remember this, Scripture interprets Scripture. 
This book cannot be understand, understood unless you understand the Old Testament. And specifically, if you're looking at a paragraph or a chapter in the book of Revelation, make sure you have an English Bible that has margins, good margins, usually on the right and the left side. And I say that because some Bibles don't have margins or they have very few comments in their margins. So get a good Bible that has a lot of references in the margins that will give you the main references to um, uh, what's being alluded to in your in, in your verse, and let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Old Testament interprets uh, the Book of Revelation. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Beale. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible. Christian books and tracts. Crossway is the publisher of Dr. Beale's The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism, Responding to New Challenges to Biblical Authority. It's another long title there, Dr. Beale. Yeah, I have a problem with that. <laughs> if you are preparing to teach through Revelation, you may want to look at the volume on Revelation by James Hamilton in Crossway's Preaching the Word Commentary series, as well as look at Crossway's Knowing the Bible Study Guide a great resource for a 12-week study of the book of Revelation. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.